We want to welcome everybody in to the Coin World Podcast as we've got another great episode in store for you right here. These are exciting times for sure. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. And today we have a great interview with Jeff Coyne about an artist slash numismatic uh, creator. Really a fascinating tale. So if you're not familiar with the story of J.S.G. Boggs, you definitely need to stick around to learn more about that. I had a blast talking to him, and I think you will have some fun hearing the interview. Yeah, I think we, we've had some opportunities at, I think, one of the fun shows recently to see some of the materials and learn a little bit more about that as well. So it was really neat to have this opportunity. I was pretty much quiet during the interview because I learned a lot and I just kind of kept quiet. But we don't want you to be quiet. We want you to reach out to us if you've got some ideas, some suggestions, some ideas that you'd like to cover here. Thank those of you who have in the past offered up some of the suggestions and we're continuing to work on some as we're booking a couple of guests for some of the shows coming up through here as we head toward the holidays here. Busy time for everybody, but we're glad that you take the time out of your busy schedule and join us here on the Coin World Podcast. Thanks so much for your continued support. But you know, we turn back time a lot and talk about things that have happened because the things that have happened in the past help make this hobby or business or investment even stronger these days, it seems like. So I'm without any further ado, let's get right into one of my favorite parts of this, and that is, of course, this week in numismatic history. Sure. And I chose this because if you listen to the podcast, you you know my special interest in mint metals. We go back to October 14th. I didn't realize it was this long ago, 1861. During the Civil War, the Mint decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start selling bronze duplicates of mint metals to the public. Maybe that, that was they needed to raise money, and that was one way to do it. Certainly, as a collector, I have a pile of bronze metals from the U.S. Mint, as well as Lots more recent, you know, it's it's coppery looking. It's but it's I think technically it's bronze. But you know the the presidential medals that the mint has done series of those. I got a lot of those and the first spouse medals. In fact, I just picked up another one. I have many of them, but when you can get one for a dollar, it's like why not throw it in the pile? The U.S. Mint bronze medals are a favorite subject, and so I have to you know, say thanks, tip my hat to the Met for October 14th, 1861, finally putting duplicates of those medals on sale. There is a rich body of work that one can collect. You know, I'm, there's, there's several works about these. R.W. Julian's, of course, famous work, first Mint medals, 1792 to 1892, I think. And I think Dennis Tucker, who we've had on the show before, did a book that references a lot of the mint metals. It's a fun topic and certainly an area worth exploring if you haven't explored it as a collector, whoever is listening. I'm totally stunned that we're talking that long ago. I mean, I would not have thought, you know, without doing any kind of research, and there's plenty of good material out there to understand that, but 1861. Man. Yep. Now, so we go back in time every week. We don't have to go back that far, though, for this week in coin world history. 
We're only going back to 1995, the October 9th issue. And 1995 is important because we reference it in the interview about Boggs. That was the year he cooperated with the Fun Show folks to issue what is one of his most affordable collectible objects. So I was excited to see the front page of Coin World for this issue. And it's something I don't remember ever seeing, the story about Canada's $2 coin that was going to debut in 1996. And Mm. uh, Richard Gedroyce, who wrote for Coin World at the time, had the story, Canada chose to bear it all September 21 as the Royal Canadian Mint unveiled the polar bear as the reverse design element for the new $2 circulation coin planned for introduction in February 1996. They had an event at the Toronto Zoo, and there was, this is the $2 coin commonly called the Toonie that has the polar bear on the reverse. Since then, the Canadians have done several collectible commemorative iterations of not only special polar bear designs, but other designs of, you know, the Canadian Navy, Bicentennial of War of 1812. They've, they've done a whole slew of, of designs on the $2 coin as well, but it did not debut until 1996, which of course, okay, 96, that was what, 26 years ago, quick math, but they still beat the Americans in issuing a $2 coin and they beat the Americans in issuing a meaningful circulating $1 coin because their they're loony, the $1, debuted in 87. Well, right below that story about the polar bear is a story from Michelle Orzano, who was at CoinWorld at the time. And her story was headline, dollar coin dead in Congress, question mark. It's interesting to see here we are in 1995, the dollar coin that we know today was still a glint in the eye of Congress, if you will, had not been passed legislatively, and it would not apparently pass legislatively in that session of Congress. Finally, we would get a new Sacagawea dollar to debut a few years, three, four years down the road, right? 99, 2000, um, and 2000, I guess, but in 99, you had the Susan B. Anthony issued in 99. So at the time, there was still very much hope for a dollar coin in the U.S., but it had not transpired in a modern way. So we still don't have a $2 coin. Canada beat us on that. And now one could say, hey, the Canadian $2 coin is only worth $1.80 U.S., so it's not really or $1.60 U.S., so it's not really exactly the same. But, you know, we're still we're still waiting for some sort of overhaul that would get dollar coins, maybe two dollar coins, something out there to circulate as certainly as we've all felt the pinch of inflation, a paper dollar just doesn't do much anymore. So at some point you think there's gotta be some change made with our change. So that that those are what were interesting to me because of their relevance even today. Yeah, and you were talking about the so a dollar sixty, dollar eighty, whatever the valuation is compared. But the bottom line is, a two dollar coin in Canada buys two dollars. 
bottom line. So that's what, you know, that's where you're going to be using the coin. That's where you're going to be spending the coin. So I, our letters to the editor from the October 9th to 1995 issue had a couple of interesting letters there. One of them was called Do Something. No good coins in circulation? Question mark. No coins for young boys and girls to discover? Question mark. No coins to pique their curiosity and introduce them to our fascinating hobby? Question mark. Let's do something about it. I know where all the circulation finds are. They're in our top drawers and in boxes labeled wheats or securely squirreled away in rolls. Yes, if you've been saving every wheat cent you've found in circulation in the past few decades, you're part of the problem. Now, that sounds a whole lot like when we had our coin shortage a couple of years ago. What can we do about it? Simply follow the lead established by the American Numismatic Association and Professional Coin Grading Service at the Anaheim Convention. and Drop some of your little treasures into circulation. Ask yourself, do you really need 25 1944 wheat cents in very fine? Wouldn't some young boy or girl get a thrill finding these coins in circulation? I'll bet each Coin World subscriber has at least two rolls of unneeded wheats. At 70,000 subscribers, that's nearly a million coins. A few kids are sure to notice. P.S. I just found a 1942S nickel and extremely fine here in San Francisco. It's so shiny, I almost didn't notice it. Could it be one of the ANA coins? Should I spend it or keep it moving? Well, time to put my money where my mouth is. And that letter is from Jonathan Hubbard of Menlo Park, California. The other letter I want to talk about was from 1995, and it says it's titled Embarrassing. I read your recent article on the 1994 theft from the Bureau of Engraving and Printing. In August 1995, I visited the BEP and went to the back of the building by mistake. A sign there stated that tickets for entry were sold in the front of the building. So I walked to the front of the building and passed an entrance that had a sign sending you to the other side. So I went to the back entrance of the building and asked the security guard about buying a tour ticket. They said that the tickets were sold in a kiosk at the front. I asked the guard why they couldn't check into changing the signs so it wouldn't be confusing. The answer was, it's not our job. We're security. This is more than a question about security at the BEP. It's about the BEP management attitude toward its staff and the public and who's responsible for what. It's this attitude on the part of the BEP staff that enables management employees to walk away with the product. I decided not to take the tour after all, but spent time looking at the exhibits in the foyer of the BEP. The disarray of the exhibits was embarrassing. Mats and frames were visibly dirty and stained. The lighting was amateurish and poor. On the positive side, the service was swift and precise when I purchased some commemorative engravings. That letter comes from Gordon Umino of Seattle, Washington. So, you know, if you're doing a good job, you want to hear about it. If you're not doing a good job, you need to hear about it as well. Now, granted, I don't imagine almost 30 years later, this is still an issue. But back then it was because it was important for us to get the experiences of these activities, museums and tours. And you know, when I was a kid, we went to all kinds of tours. We went to breweries. We went to automobile manufacturing plants. We went to a certain chocolate manufacturer in Pennsylvania. We love taking the tours. And I would think that, you know, anybody would have that same opportunity here. And those tours give us the opportunity to put our best foot forward. So I think the letter was intended more to 
point out where there was a need to improve, not to be critical. So I don't mean to malign your parents, but what were they doing taking you to a brewery when you were a kid? I would get free root beer out of the deal. So, okay. yeah, okay. I mean, it was it was all about the manufacturing process. But uh, I think of the brewery because part of the taking the tours back then was the stuff that you got for free. And, you know, we couldn't as kids, we couldn't get stuff for free. You could get I mean, I, I had golf tees. I had, you know, ball markers, things like that that were, you know, I could use. Wasn't everything in your life as a kid free? I mean, your parents paid for you. I mean, you know, you. Well, I, many of these tours actually were free. Okay. So, you know, it was common for us to go to Detroit, to Dearborn and, and go through the Rotunda area. This is we're talking in the 60s now. So, okay. you know, just, you know, the times were different then. When I was but, a boy. Yeah, yeah, hey. exactly. Yeah. I wanted to go through the Corvette plant in St. Louis, but it never happened for me. So I never got there, but I did. My my mother's dad, my maternal grandfather, worked at a bread company and he he took my twin brother and I when we were, you know, four or five or six, somewhere in there, and and took us around and toured the plant. Colonial Bakery, which it got it got bought by the company Anheuser Busch and all that, I think, um in the eighties. But so, you know, I vaguely recall going to see the, the big bread factory here in St. Louis. So didn't didn't see too many people working. They were all open. Ah, geez, set me up for that one. But, you know, I think about this and you know, go back to the first letter about kids. And, you know, when I was a kid going through these tours, it was neat to watch this stuff. Loved going through the Kellogg's plant, even though, I mean, sometimes the smell got a little like it was they, they were burning the stuff. But, you know, just the idea that these these make lasting impressions. And if you can see, you know, coins being made, metals being made, different things like that, you know, currency being made, just like the idea that just another way to tie in an experience. And there's so much visual involved. And of course, we're going to be talking about the visual side of things in the interview coming up with Jeff Coyen. Absolutely. What do we got next on the agenda here? Well, you know, our next point is not trivial, but it is trivia. And the last episode, I believe it was, we we talked with Dave Frank about POW chits. And so I wanted to know how prevalent these were. I even gave you the number of how many states there there were POW chits issued, you know, how many states in which this was issued. But I wanted to know which were the states, the, the four states that did not have any POW chits available for collection. So Four out of 50. There's 50 states. Do you have any idea what those four states were? Well, you know, right away, and I know we specifically mentioned we only had 48 states during World War II. There were two that were not states yet, but I do believe they were not included in the four that were not in in there. I think they were some of the less populated states. I'm not sure that we had one in some of the East Coast states either, but my guesses are going to be along the line of Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota. Well, you, you, good, good guess on, good guess on the 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 fact that Hawaii and Alaska were not states yet, but they actually there were you know they were U.S. territories, and and there are 
chits available from there. However, your guess was very good in suggesting Montana and North Dakota. So you got two of four correct. There, the other two that you named are not correct, and that leaves two other states for which no chits are known today. And one of them is Nevada, out west. And the other is Connecticut, out east. Small oh, Connecticut. State. Yeah. Okay. So, you know. I'm, I would have been surprised, like Delaware, Rhode Island, some of the geographically smaller states. But apparently they, you know, the, the, the plan that they had called for them to be involved. Tried to think, too, about military bases and where they were. Of course, military bases in the 40s, a lot different than they are now because after decommissioning so many bases here in this country. So kind of a challenge to kind of figure out unless you had Dave's book. And that would give you the answer right there. Yeah. You say decommissioning bases. That's such a fight. Congress represents those, you know, wherever the bases are. And, and it's such a uphill battle to get any alignment, realignment, closure of bases. But I'm sure it, it looks different now than it did back then, you know, 80 years ago, say. But you, you do need to get the book. It's a great book. And I say you, and I'm referring to everybody listening. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview last week with Dave Frank. But now I think you're really going to enjoy this interview with Jeff Coyan and our discussion about JSG Boggs. I guess I should ask you, before we go to the interview, a question about Boggs, huh? Okay. And Jeff and I, the other Jeff, we talk about several different Boggs um, products and denominations that he made. What was the first Boggs bill that he made? What denomination was it? And the bonus points, what year was this? And how did he use it? How did he spend it? So, Oh, good. Uh, oh, good. Go good. Oh, good. Oh, good. I can't hardly wait. Okay. So here is that interview. I think you'll enjoy it. The CoinWorld Podcast is so excited today to be exploring the legacy of artist, some would say counterfeiter, J.S.G. Boggs. And here with us today to discuss this fascinating, sometimes mercurial, very important numismatic artist of the late 20th century is Jeff Coyan, a representative of the Boggs Estate. Thank you so much for being here today. For those who aren't familiar with the body of Boggs' work, which it's hard to fathom given his place in the hobby, you know, he's been the subject of numerous coin world and numismatist articles and, and other, you know, videos and, and Discovery Channel documentaries and all that. What's the best way to describe Boggs and his place in, in this hobby? But, you know, again, I think he maybe transcends the hobby and, and is an artist. How would you describe Boggs to those who are unfamiliar with his work? Yeah, it's a good question. He was definitely a confusing guy with a, a very varied body of work. His at, at core, you know, he's been described as a money artist, and he's definitely a big figure in the hobby, as you mentioned. But prior to that, he really was, you know, on the international stage in the art world, you know, capital A, capital W. He was part performance artist. He was a fine artist. He, he had you know, artist by training. His really claim to fame was drawing money and convincing people to accept those drawings at face value. So if he had a drawing of $100, $100 bill, 
he would convince somebody to take that as $100 and give him change. And that really is really what his claim to fame was, was the so-called transactions. And then I feel, you know, philosophically, he, he started really seeing a, you know, a deeper meaning to what he was doing in terms of challenging the value of money. And I think this is where sort of it, it starts to intersect with, with the hobby, as, as you say, where he was looking as money, at money as artwork. You know, every piece of currency, most have portraiture on them. They have fine work. They, you know, they're, they're, they're deeply artistic pieces of work that are worth something, you know, like any other art. So I think that's sort of how he intersects. He's, he's a, I think he's a fairly unique character, a fine artist on the international stage collected by museums and top collectors who also then, you know, went to the conventions and was with the people who really, you know, your, your community, the people who really, really felt for, you know, currency and, and those kind of pieces. And, and he wasn't just somebody replicating money scratch for scratch, if you will. I mean, he was adding some touches to some of the designs, right? Yeah, absolutely. They were, they were statements. They were unique pieces of work. He was political at times. He was absurdist at times. Some of his, you know, and that's not to at all take away, you know, his, his, as an artist or his draftsman-like quality, some of these pieces are, are, are beautiful and meticulous and, you know, hand-drawn down to the pixel, as you might say, you know, with the, with the sharpest little pencils and pens. But yeah, he, he did not try to replicate. He was not, you know, in introduction to him, a potential counterfeiter, and that certainly how some government saw him, but he never, ever tried to pass off, you know, bills as the real thing. All of them had some sort of statement, some sort of joke. He had inside jokes. He drew friends. He inserted his names in different spots. So he was very much a prankster, you know, with, with a serious philosophy behind him. Can you give me an example of one of those inside jokes or, or minute details? Like, I know, for instance, some of the $500 notes have Willie instead of William McKinley, but that's, you know, that's a minor thing. Is it, What are some of the, the ways he used this art to poke fun at people or have fun with friends? Well, I think sort of one of his ultimate pieces was the $5,000 bill that he produced and he put himself on it and he had a professional engraving done and put himself in the middle and signed it himself or there's other bills. One of the ones that I think he should be rightly most famous for was commissioned in, in the mid nineties. He put Harriet Tubman as a young girl on the hundred dollar bill. And, and this predates by 15, 20 years, the, you know, the, the U S federal reserve, I, I think they're in charge of it once, you know, proposed putting Harriet Tubman on, on the $20 bill. So again, it was, it was, deconstruction. It was political. He was making statements about these things. And any one of these works, if you just look at the fine detail, you'll find a funny signature. You'll find an intentional, you know, misspelling, or maybe it wasn't intentional. <laughs> he, he just, he, he, he played it straight. But if you look closer, you'll, you, there's more layers that open up to you. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Tubman, although that kind of stole my thunder. We, you know, wanted to talk about the fact that, you know, he, he chose Tubman as you know, decades before the government decided to move toward that end. But it's not the Tubman image that we're used to seeing in, in the recent discussion of this you know, taciturn elder stateswoman. It's, as you say, a young child. And that was there was some considerable thought behind that, right? Yeah, I, I can't speak to his exact thought process at the time, but contemporary accounts, Wayne Homran, who I'm sure your, your listeners are familiar with, he was there. He, he's written about it. 
contemporaneously rather uh, in, in 1994 about just the thinking of just putting someone else on this bill and, you know, what you would say now is decrying the patriarchy, but that, that wasn't the vocabulary back then. It was just Boggs's feeling that we should just shake these things up. And he ended up doing a, a series of five bills altogether, the women's series, where he had a young woman of color on the $1 bill and called it the first female president. Um, he put uh, Martha Washington on a $10 bill, you know, so, and then he put like, you know, a friend on, I think it's the $5 bill, but you know, the, the women's series, you know, this was his statement of, you know, let's, let's revisit this and shake things up. And again, this is 1994, not current times where, you know, the, the vocabulary might've been different. I, I think he was ahead of his time and on the right side of history, even back then. As I recall from what Wayne wrote and what then our colleague Steve Roach, editor-at-large at Coinworld, wrote, Boggs chose the young Tubman because, you know, he, he sort of asked, you know, this, this older image, this image of this older person, how can a young person relate to that? But if they see themselves in, you know, a similar or, or nearby, you know, adjacent age range, then that was a way to really experience representation again, which is a, a word that we weren't really using then, but it was it was a way for people to connect with that image at a much greater level than that old, you know, I don't want to say sourpuss, but you know, that very dour that you know, all those old photos, they had to sit there for forever and, and not move. And so that you know, they're not smiling, they're not you know, emotive necessarily in that way that that we might, you know, certainly are today. So I found that interesting and it, it aligns with what you said about, you know, having the women's series and, and you know, being forward looking in that regard. Yeah, I, I agree. That's that's fascinating to hear. And, you know, it's it's about being at the, the start of your journey, not sitting back at the end of your journey. And that's certainly in contrast to the portraiture we have on our, our actual money. It's you know, the older men distinguished at the end of their careers and looking back at what they've done, Boggs is very much a, you know, a younger looking forward type artist in, in philosophy. So the estate has stepped in. Uh, Boggs, we should note, died in 2017. Fairly young, I want to say 62, I think. What was the process like? Uh, why is it we now, I mean, you for for clarification, you guys were set up at the A&A show for the listeners this summer. And, you know, Boggs' story has been told and retold for 20, 30 years. What's the catalyst now for the estate coming out and promoting his his legacy and tapping into those earlier stories? Yeah, well, I, I've just joined the, the state as an advisor just, you know, recently in the last year or so. And I'm a fairly you know, newcomer to Boggs himself. Just a few years ago, I was a coin collector when I was, was young, but it didn't carry into adulthood. I've, I've got a, a couple of sons, so I've, you know, tried to pull out the old collection here and there. But I'm coming in from with a modern lens. I came across Boggs in the context of cryptocurrency. I'm, I'm a fairly early investor and buyer in, in crypto. And I'm a, I'm a believer in the philosophy of crypto of sort of the same thing, questioning authority and, you know, taking means of exchange and, and stores of value outside of sort of the centralized government construct. And as it turns out, that's what Boggs was saying 20 and 30 years ago. And 
there's a, a growing community of people in the cryptocurrency world who are looking at Boggs and saying, man, this guy was saying what I'm saying now, but you know, in the 80s and 90s, what, what is the value of money? What is a piece of paper worth? Why can't I just create my own work and, and exchange it in kind with another willing participant? So that's how I came in. I was looking into Boggsian inspired digital art when the estate sort of, we just crossed paths and they were looking to, you know, they've, they've inherited, Boggs himself didn't have any descendants. So the family has, you know, inherited his work and they take it as a, a serious responsibility. So they continue to do the presence at stuff like the ANA, but they, we, we started talking and they started understanding my sort of, again, modern excitement and connection to Boggs's work to what, you know, what's going happening in, in decentralized finance and cryptocurrency. So we have sort of two things, the ANA, the, the, the hobbyist you know, presence is still there, but it's my job. And I, I use job in quotes because I'm really just an advisor where this is, you know, as much a hobby as anything else. We are trying to explore how Boggs's work can have meaning and resonance to a new audience, you know, outside of the money collectors and the numismatists, and that that's what we're doing. So we are creating editions, digital editions of his work that can be purchased, you know, in a very accessible pricing. And really, it's a it's an experiment. It's saying, what would Boggs do? And we've spoken to people, you know, plenty of people who knew him back then, his biographer. They all believe that at Bo- you know, if Boggs were alive today, he would be in deep into crypto. He would be using NFTs and digital media as, as his canvas. As he started to, in the late 90s, he was doing digital work. So that's really sort of the goal here is to say, here's this guy who, you know, we're not going to say was forgotten, but, you know, fell off the world stage in terms of the fine art. And yet he was prescient. He was way ahead of his time philosophically. So it's sort of my job to connect those dots and bring his legacy into the future. The timing is such that you you have launch of NFTs, that's non-fungible tokens and, and other things slated for something like October 17. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, we are in partnership with a French platform called La Collection. LaCollection.io. They were they they are the best partners out there. They work with museums and we will be their first first estate partnership. We're going to do do a drop as they say of our first NFT of a 50 pound note on Monday, October 17, and then four more every week thereafter. So we are creating small editions, NFTs, very modestly priced. We're not trying, you know, the, the NFT craze from a year ago, that's not what we're part of. You know, this is not board apes. This is not, you know, uh, stupid cartoons and JPEGs. This is working, you know, on, on a museum level, with an estate level to create, like I said, a new legacy. And we're also producing physical items to go with it. So it's very exciting for us. And again, we're doing this in a manner that we think Boggs himself would approve. You know, the estate is made up of his cousins and family members and people who knew him well. And again, we've spoken to people, you know, his friends and his colleagues and people like Wayne and Craig Whitford, who is our the archivist. And we think we're doing, you know, we, we think we're respecting him and doing him right. It's really said just a way to move forward and get him, put him back where he belongs, which is you know, a visionary and someone who was, you know, a prankster and a rebel well before his time. And 
you know, and as you know, like I said, the story's been told a million times, really put his money where his mouth is, you know, took the arrests, did the court time to really, you know, do what he believed. Speaking of the physical objects, you know, because I'm very much an on-dead tree kind of person when I, you know, I mean, I, I view the Coin World Digital Edition every week, but I, I really sink in when I get the copy by mail. You had some hard copies, some some earlier Boggs made works, I think, for sale at the ANA. You certainly had them on display. And these items come up for sale periodically. In fact, our uh, Steve Roach, I mentioned earlier, his story at coinworld.com about Boggs referenced a, a sale in 2015 of October rent, $500. How, how many objects are out there still for sale physically versus maybe what might be in a museum collection? For instance, the Chicago Art Institute seems to have the whole run of all 12 of the different monthly rent series from 1991. What's out there for collectors? What's on display or in museum collections? It seems there's a varied level of pieces available. Yeah, I, I mean, I personally have collected a few of the fun bucks and that was just at public auction, you know, at Heritage. And you're right, you do see the fun bucks come up, you know, the, the things that he did at the, the shows and they were giveaways or they were subscription premiums. So yeah, you do see, you see those pop up, you know, at very modest prices, a couple hundred dollars. Um, you know, eBay, I'm, I don't know, listeners feel about buying stuff on eBay, but there's a, you know, I'm not going to say a huge circulation of those items, but they, they do come up because they're sitting in people's collections and, you know, somebody throw them up there. The larger works you don't see come up very often. I haven't seen a transaction, like you said, the October rent of a proper transaction that includes the receipt, you know, the artwork and whatever else, you know, when he bought a motorcycle, the motorcycle was part of it. He paid his hotel bill, the, the bathroom was part of it. You don't see those come up very often. There was one large work that came up about three months ago at a auction house up in upstate New York. But other than that, you don't see the large pieces. They're, they're not trading hands. because, And I, I think that goes to the passion, the people, you know, a lot of the people who are holding those people, these pieces, new box. You know, he was a very common figure in the community there. So a lot of collectors bought directly from him or, you know, sought him out or sought out his transactions. So it's going to be interesting to see in the coming years, you know, if, if his legacy is restored and, you know, put up where we believe it belongs, which is said a visionary, you know, basically the, the patron saint of cryptocurrency in a way, it'll be interesting to see what happens with those larger works. If they emerge from collections and, and get onto the market, we're not sure. But again, in the meantime, one of the reasons we're doing this NFT is exactly that, to sort of put this out there, create some new works. And there is a physical component to this because we are doing this in a Bogsian way of you could buy the NFT, but we will then send you a personal receipt to go with it. So in that way, you're having the receipt and the object, just like, you know, a transaction 1.0, if you would. It probably is important to note for collectors, because we talk about Boggs and all this, you know, his, you know, pro proficiency and proliferation of these hand-drawn objects. I was excited to learn of something that wasn't hand-drawn that's much more affordable. You had a bunch of them on display at the show and these were plastic Sacagawea dollars. What, what do you know about that? 
Yeah, I don't remember the edition size, and I believe a lot of them got seized, is what I remember. But he, yeah, he put those out. Sort of, I, I see that in, in sort of the same line as the, the Tubman bill. It was his version of the Sacagawea. I, I can't remember. The estate would know the exact number that he produced, but I know the estate has, has a number of them. They don't have, you know, tens of thousands, so there is a certain amount of scarcity, but it's an entry-level piece. And, and you do see those come up on eBay and, and Heritage sometimes. Yeah. And But like I said, you can buy directly from the estate at, at the shows. And I, I agree. That's why I've got a, not a complete set, but several fun bucks. Because they were, you know, easy for me to to take one or two and have a little collection of my own without busting the bank. I happen to have one of those plastic Sacagawea dollars, and that's so. You know, I'm I'm delighted to say that I own a Boggs, although you know the the addition was I think several thousand, as you know, not you know not limited like the the fun bucks, which for for those who aren't aware, in I want to say 1995 he made 500 of these. Um, interpretations of the dollar federal reserve note with the seals reversed and they could only be obtained at the show with the donation to fun or by renewing a subscription to banknote reporter and so you know this is there's 500 of them out there and he also you know this was fun in Steve's story he talks about how he paid the fun organization with these for his booth at the show so what a you know what a neat concept. Two hundred went to fund to pay for the bore space, five hundred went to pay for the ad space and banknote reporter, and three hundred were sold by Boggs directly. So what a what a neat piece for somebody looking for a way to enter the the art market. That's just the intersection of of commercialization and artistry. And the conceptualization of what is money, I think Boggs is a, a delight to talk about and learn about. He, would you say he very much knew what he was doing, challenging these perceptions, poking fun at the Federal Reserve note, the, the modern, you know, the U.S. monetary system? You know, he was in on the joke, I think. Is, is that fair to say? I would think so. Again, I, I didn't know him personally, but we've spoken to a lot of people. I've gotten to know people that did know him personally. I absolutely think he was in on the joke. I, I, in my opinion, I would say that it all started as a, as a lark, drawing a, you know, drawing a dollar bill and having a waitress accept it. Then some spark happened, and I, I, I would dare to say that his early career was very much a, you know, a bit of a fluke. He was in Europe, and then it took off, and then I have to imagine that the philosophy might have come a little second where he was then, well, you know what, we're, we're going to see how far this can go. And then I also have to say that when the authorities came in and told him he can't do it, that I have to imagine that's what that's what sparked it up. You know, he, he was going to thumb his nose at the Fed and, and at the Bank of England who, who came after him. And that only seemed to fuel him. And, and then, you know, the infamous plan for Pittsburgh where he was going to print a million dollars and you know, he just wanted to push it more and more. And it's something I admire about him. He was just, he absolutely was in on the joke. He wanted to push it as far as he can. And having a career sort of felt like an interesting after effect. <laughs> you know, I think he was just an artist doing what he was doing who managed to make a living at it. That's a great summation and a great way to close talking about the Boggs legacy. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating. I've I've always loved reading about him, learning about him, and wishing I had 
had a chance to meet him in person. Thank you so much for being here today and sharing the Boggs legacy with the Coin World podcast listeners. I really appreciate it. And if anyone wants to keep up on it, we have the estate website is jsgboggs.org, where even if you're not interested in the NFT part of it, there's still samples of his work. The women collection has been collected there online. We have samples and we're going to expand the archives and you know digitize more as you know time allows. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Fantastic. And that was our interview with Jeff Coyan about JSG Boggs. What a blast. What a neat area. Thank you for listening to it. And as always, thank you for listening to the Coin World podcast. Yeah, we definitely do appreciate you being involved with this. And again, your suggestions are welcome. And thanks, Jeff. And Jeff Coyne, appreciate you stepping up here and, and helping us out here. We've got some more planned for you here coming up as we continue in 2022. And we hope that your numismatic journey is as gratifying as it is for us to put these podcasts together and bring them out for you on a regular basis. Continue to subscribe, continue to listen, and tell your friends, get more interest into the numismatic hobby and how we can all be a part of it. So until we meet again, until next time, happy collecting.